I admire people who, who know their language and who use their language because it's our way into culture. Ownership of Indigenous affairs by mainstream media has created a language that really puts Aboriginal people in a certain box. We are bringing our ancient tongues into this modern hemisphere and we'll continue to do that. I'm Kate Golden at the Walkley Foundation, and this is the Walkley Talks podcast miniseries, Conversations from Storyology, our 2016 Journalism Festival. When was the last time you heard a story about Torres Strait Islanders or Aboriginal people in the media being told in an Indigenous language? If you're struggling to remember, that's not too surprising. About half of the 250 Indigenous languages once spoken in Australia are no longer being spoken. Of the ones that are, most are severely or critically endangered. But as you're about to hear, there is hope. Young people are now getting some tools to incorporate traditional languages into their lives. We in the media need to work out what role these languages play in telling the stories of indigenous communities. To talk about it, we brought together five people who are doing just that. Alan Clark is the indigenous affairs reporter at BuzzFeed Australia. Lionel Lovett is a Wiradjuri language teacher at Parks Public School in western New South Wales. Salua Middleton is a producer from ABC Open on the Gold Coast. And Bruce Pascoe is writer and director at First Languages Australia. Jade Christian, commissioning editor at NITV, moderated. She gets things started, and Bruce is the first to answer. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Cadigal people. They speak the Darug language, and obviously from the Eora Nation. Mm. We come from the oldest living culture in the world. been orators for many years. Bruce, I guess I come to you, you know, author, you know, researcher, writer of the Wurundjeri Language Dictionary. I guess your opinion, what's your take on what's the role of, of storytellers? Well, we're uh, storytelling animals. That's what distinguishes us from other beasts. And um, last night I was having dinner with a few of this mob here and uh, that's all we did was tell stories to each other. I can't repeat the stories, but um, <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> one involved a very old man in a nursing home and, um, you know, his desire to still have conjugal relations with women, you know. So it's a fascinating story and um, I, I thought, personally, I thought it was a bit close to the, I nearly said, you know, you know what I mean. Um, so, um, you know, I, that's what we do as, uh, as people and our people have always told stories. It's how our whole culture was transferred. Our whole knowledge of the sky was told in story. And um, we continue to do it. It's never stopped. I remember, you know, being awestruck by my auntie's ability to tell stories. You know, she'd tell them, she'd start them one weekend and um, she'd be, she'd tell the, the next episode the next weekend and then the next weekend. And I just thought that skill to hold an audience like that, you know, over three weekends, over meals and things like that. I, I just was, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to tell stories to people. So I, I can't stop myself, you know. It's, or, and I've, I've had to work to um, be able to do that, but to indulge that habit, but that's what I do. And it, it's so culturally important. I was just saying to Brother Lionel that, um, one of the young men from the Yuan nation. He's a very, very busy man, but he wants to learn his language. And, uh, you know, he has quite a lot of language, but he says, I want to be able to speak it fluently. 
and he, um, he's got little children, so he's got a busy life. He runs a business. And um, so I, I said to him, well, brother, I'll, I'll write you a letter to your daughter, once, one letter a week in language. And I'll, it's helping me, teach me the language. And I'm writing this, this little girl called Lacey and her father has to translate it. So the whole family and my family are involved in this. I sent a copy of it to my grandson because um, it's got photographs with it as well. And he can't read it yet, but he's going to have it. Um, he'll have the photographs. And so I, I see language as vital. And, and I admire people who, who know their language and who use their language because it's our way into culture. And it's the way I found, it's actually the Wathorong language I was working on. And I was trying to teach myself the Wathorong language because my grandmother was Bunurong and that was, Wathorong was the closest language to Bunurong. So in order to find my way back into culture, I tried to teach myself the Wathorong language. And you know, in the end, the, the community wanted a dictionary, so I, I did that. But language is really important uh, to me, you know, in every moment of my life. Can I just go back a bit? And I just want to quote from the First Languages Australia website, which you're also a director of, but I ask Faith if I could actually quote this, which kind of speaks to what you're saying. It's part from the page that says, why maintain languages? Language and culture are interdependent. It was long understood that language is the verbal expression of culture. It is the medium through which culture is carried and transferred through stories, songs, and the nuanced meaning of words contain uh, the key to understanding one's world and their part of it. So I thought that was really relevant and it speaks exactly what you're saying. And I think it's a quite a beautiful story, especially if you're wanting to transfer culture to that next generation. And I guess I'll bring Lyle into this conversation now. And um, Lyle, you're, you're a teacher of language as part of the New South Wales education system. How, how do you find that? How do you reach that that young mind and get them to embrace language, to regenerate it? Certainly within the, the classroom setting, me sitting up, standing up the front of, uh, in front of all these from students from K to six, five years old to 12 years old, <clears throat> I, I sort of see them as, a, as the driver of those because once I start, you know, bringing out some language and doing some works, they want to take it somewhere else. So we'll pursue down that way and, and it's forever growing and evolving. So, yeah, I, I see the children in front of me as the drivers and, and, and the thinkers behind of what they want and they're, 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 the, they're going to be the ones that continue it on with the language. So when I, when I take in language into the classroom, there's always a meaning behind every word. So that sort of gets the grasp of them to... Think about, oh yes, if, if you imagine yourself uh, in that time and speaking that language, you can understand what's, what's happening around you. And the, and the students do have a connection to that because you sort of see a light bulb go on in their head thinking, and that's when it's a bit quiet and you think, oh yeah, they're, they're, they're thinking about it themselves. So <clears throat> me teaching the language in class, it's, it's just me standing at the front and then, you know, reflecting back on what the children think after the day or after that lesson. So finding continuous ways to keep the children thinking or keep the children engaged is always a, a continual thing. I wanted to bring, it, bring Salua and Alan into this conversation now. Um, 
being storytellers from a news background, mm. you know, how it's your job really to tell stories. It's your job to present the news in the best way forward. You know, I, I guess I'll come to you, Sula, first is it's part of ABC Open. I know that you have the Mother Tongue Project. Yep. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it first? So ABC Open is part of the ABC and it's all about engaging with communities across Australia and we have this project called Mother Tongue and First Languages Australia worked with one of our earlier producers, Susie Taylor, some years ago and they created this uh, wonderful video about language and it was in a school environment and and she made a couple of videos but it, we had to think about how how could communities create these videos because it's all about engagement and user-generated content ABC Open. So how could we get the community to create these kinds of videos and that, you know, shared Indigenous languages throughout Australia. So we worked, we worked um, with First Languages Australia back and forth and it took a little while to get off the ground, but, you know, um, First Languages Australia and Faith was very passionate about, you know, making sure that this project happened. And in the end, we had um, over 100 and, well, at the mo as of today, I had a look, uh, 103 stories that came through. And I put together a bit of a showreel, which shows, I guess, the diversity of the kinds of stories that we got and the diverse ways that they're told. And as we know, Indigenous languages in Australia, there's hundreds. And um, so there's no, you know, from the East Coast to the West Coast, from the North to the South to the islands, you know, it's all, it's all, they're all very different. And the way that we share those stories and the people who hold that knowledge of those languages is varied. You know, there's some communities that don't necessarily know their languages or have their language and then there are communities where English is like their you know second third maybe fourth fifth language so that that was a beautiful thing about this project is that it invited all of these communities that we were able to reach out to with First Languages Australia to share their stories yeah I think it's pretty amazing you know the stories we got one is my name is Danielle the other word for hair is alda. I am good. I am good. I teach three to five year olds the Ghana language in the local area. The Rotary Nation is the biggest in New South Wales, but the second biggest in Australia. We've got it in three primary schools. A thousand children a week in parks is being taught an Aboriginal language and Aboriginal culture. This is the country of five clans Murwan, Manilagar, Onij, Danek, and Before another language came in, it's Kunungu. When I was a kid, I used to love hearing the stories about when the old men, like Drumley, camped up here in the mountains at night. Now, our word for camp in Yugambeh is inala, and our word for fire is wavera. I think the value in reviving language isn't just for now, it's for the generations to come. Holly is the next generation to inspire other people, to encourage language across the community. That's a bit of a snapshot of, of the stories that we got. There's like plenty more there and well worth checking out. But 
going back to the quote that um, that you got permission from Faith to use was, you know, those things are in there, that language, you know, the, the culture. In those videos, um, you know, you've got food, you've got... Uh, we, we didn't have enough time to get the one with dance in there, but you know there was food, their places where where they are, the language. You know, it's it covers it all. So it, I thought that kind of ties in nicely, actually, with the kind of selection that we've got. That you know, language is really fundamental, almost, also to to culture and all those things. Yeah. Before I come to Alan, before I come, to, uh-huh. so I'm just going to go back to to Bruce really quickly. You when you were saying earlier about researching and writing the Watharong dictionary. Mm. So how, how did you actually go and find that information? Like, where was it accessible for you to to help re, revitalise, I guess, language? Uh, Wathorong community were knocked around very badly by Europeans because they, they had the lands where the Batman and people like that landed. So there was conflict more or less straight away and, and the people suffered very badly. So the only resources we had were from one missionary, and most of his resources had been burnt down in a fire. So we had this quite a large dictionary, but my job was to go and speak to the old people first. We had a a few people who spoke a little bit of the language, so I had to try and get as much of that language from them as possible. And um, then I went to all the libraries and, you know, I'm a bookish sort of a person, so it was, you know, it was good fun, really. But I, you encounter a lot of racism because you go into museums and places like that. You know the record is there. You know, you, so you go prepared with all the information and still they say, no, we don't have it. And I said, look, I know you've got it. So, and, yeah, you had to have this conversation. So as well as recording the information culturally, you're also having to uh, fight against Australian history, uh, this residual resentment of uh, non-Aboriginal people to the fact that you're still alive. And that can be depressing. But, you know, finding new words was the joy. So um, I just loved it. You know, I, I loved personally being able to speak an animal's name. And in Aboriginal languages, Animals are crucial, and their names are crucial. Some of those names are uh, spiritual names and have great significance uh, to the philosophy of Aboriginal people. But I'm always surprised when I learn a new language name and I go into the bush and I talk to a particular animal with that name. Um, you know, my, maybe it's psycho-suggestion, but it seems to me the animal whips its head around and looks at me. Just recently, one of the uh, Ewan men has been running these tours on Gulaga Mountain. And uh, we've noticed in the past that the, the lyrebird has paid a lot of attention to clapsticks. And, you know, it gradually dawned on us that the, the basic call of the lyrebird is clapsticks. And whether or not that's its own voice or whether it is, every time it hears a human, it tries to communicate with the clapsticks. But just recently, the bird has been really trying to communicate with us. And um, we introduce each person who comes onto the mountain with one beat of the clapsticks. And on this occasion, there were 29. Uh, the lyrebird waited until everyone had come onto the mountain. 
and then uh, clicked 29 times. And it was, you know, like when, when you say that to people, they go, oh, nah, just an accident, you know. But it's done it a number of times, you know, as few as three, you know, as many as 29. And that bird is trying to communicate with us. And that's Naranaran. That's the lyre bird. You know, that's central to our culture. So for us to be able to communicate with that bird in that way and for it to be able to communicate with us is a, is a great thing for the country because those old links are still there. We are still practising culture. We've never stopped. And going from that ancient knowledge that, you know, Bruce is actually weaving his story magic, as you can see, conjuring up those imageries in our head, we're going to move forward <laughs> and come into modern, te- you know, modern technology, modern society, and using BuzzFeed, I guess, as a, as a way of reaching that young, younger demographic. That's what BuzzFeed does, yeah? Yes. I mean, I guess, you know, Alan, I guess your take as a journalist, as an Aboriginal man, you know, how do you tell your stories? How do you reach that younger dem- demographic? Well, I think it's incredibly important that we we kind of, we try and engage younger people, and that's been my mandate since I started um, as a journalist, whether it was for SBS or or ABC, because as an Aboriginal man who grew up in Western New South Wales, a very small town, uh, surrounded by my very large uh, extended Aboriginal family, there was. Some, some things missing. There was language, there was culture. And whenever I heard a little bit of my language or a little bit of a story about traditional dance, I mean, it, it, it did something inside of me, which um, you know, gave me immense pride. I didn't know it at the time, but it was just an incredible feeling. So I think growing up, I realized that's, that's because it's intrinsically linked to us as black people, that language and storytelling are part of our culture, and no matter how eroded it's become since colonisation, it's still there. And so uh, just me as a young Aboriginal man feeling that I want to give that feeling to other young Aboriginal people now. So while BuzzFeed and social media and technology is a very modern prism, it's one in which I can push through ancient storytelling techniques which my people have done for thousands of years. And, and, and it still works today. It's, you know, whether it's an Aboriginal person reading that or whether it's non-Indigenous, the, the amount of feedback I get, particularly from young people, is incredibly inspiring because they're hearing stories now that they can relate to or they can say, that's me, or, you know, that's what my community's like, rather than having young Aboriginal people out there in communities feeling like they're living in satellites, you know, kind of, kind of cut off from the rest of the world. So I've been in, incredibly lucky. I think that's been my, my driver since I've been quite young. I'm, I'm glad you actually also mentioned about, you know, the decline of languages in the um, National Indigenous Language Survey 2005. They had actually accounted to, what, less than 150 languages still spoken um, in Australia. So I thought that was really interesting that hmm. you brought that up. But I, yeah. I think you've got a really cute article, I think, about Australian language. Can we bring that up? Do you want to speak to us a bit, a bit about that? And oh, yeah. I guess you talked about how it also reaches a younger demographic. Yeah, so this is incredible uh, piece done by Chris Rodley, um, who's an amazing, incredible man. But he brought me in and said, oh, look, we're doing these Australian words. Can we collaborate with you and, and put some Aboriginal words in there? <laughs> 
<laughs> so, and some of them are hilarious. And so we started to put in some, so like Dari is uh, sort of a slang Aboriginal word. So these, you know, the words we've put in there um, include tira, which means sister, dadi, which is cigarette in, in Noongar, and, you know, boju, gammon, gammon, yeah, gammon is sort of a communal one, which means fake, um, gammon, there you go. Uh, <laughs> And Buju, which is, uh, comes from the Northern Territory, but is now being used by, by white people. And it's quite incredible to hear that, you know, when I go to Darwin and people saying Buju, I'm like, hey, like, you know, you know slang. But I think, yeah, I think <laughs> Buju is like hot person. <laughs> like, uh, <clears throat> but the thing is that this, you know, what's a bit of fun, in fact, actually shows the progression mm -hmm. of Aboriginal language um, in terms of, particularly from areas where language has been eroded or the missionaries punished people for speaking their language. So people created their own ways to connect with each other and, and it's very common now. You, I mean, I could go to Perth or Darwin or Cairns or Burke, where I'm from, or Dubbo, and we have a common, common, common language, you know, and, and it identifies us and it's very important and I think that's the evolution of... of of language to seek each other out and identify each other. It's even with the phrases, is you know, you go somewhere and you go, who's your mob? Yeah. And he, that's kind of a universal way of saying, you yeah. know, are we related? Are we, you know, who <laughs> exactly. do we know in common? Are we family and friends? It, it, exactly. And I mean, it, it's sort of a little signifier saying, hey, I'm, I'm Aboriginal yeah. as well. I mean, I, even if you're just talking with a stranger yeah. and you say, oh, that's gammon, mm. people immediately sort of peek oh yeah, he's a black fella. And it's a really great feeling to have that, um, particularly when a lot of language has been lost, traditional language. We, we were sort of, well, I was listening to their conversation, these two, and they, they talked about social media as platforms for um, sometimes that mis misinterpretation of, of what things mean. We, we're in this fast-paced society now that you could say something in the media as an Indigenous journalist or even as an Indigenous person and it can be misconstrued, you know, I guess I'd put it to the whole panel, you know, how do you, how do you find that when, when, you know, as public speakers, if you say something that's out of score, where yeah. does that, how does that come back, you know, like... The community will make you accountable yeah. always, like if, you, if you've done something wrong, you know, <laughs> you know, like you've, you know, used the wrong phrase or wrong done something out of, yeah, in, you haven't yeah. put the context there. Maybe communities will always tell you, <laughs> yeah. you know, where you've where you've gone wrong. I think as yeah, you have if you're to be an Aboriginal, careful as a content yeah. maker or somebody putting anything out there. You have to. There's a complete responsibility or accountability to your community. Mm. I mean, even as a news journalist, you're trying to get things out, but you also have in the back of your mind that you have a responsibility to tell those stories as authentically as possible. I mean, I think you brought up this article, but it's the language of Indigenous affairs is very important as well. And that's something, yeah. So how do you keep it authentic? Like, you know, where, where do you find the source? If you have to use, you know, bits and pieces of language within a, an article or within a news story or within a book or when you're in school, how do you, how do you find that authenticity then? I think... Just to, this article is an example. I went to the Kimberley and I sort of travelled from Broome to Kununurra and talked to people about juvenile detention, which is very in the news at the moment. But this was last year, and you know, did not find one family that that didn't have a kid in in um, 
in detention down in Perth, which is enormous, um, you know, far. Or at least knew someone as young as 10 who'd been in police custody, you know, for some stupid, petty crime. Anyway, I think telling that, this story had been told before throughout that year because Amnesty International released a report. But the language just wasn't right. It didn't sit right with me. Often it was sort of almost victim blaming or, you know, ownership of Indigenous affairs by mainstream media has created a language that we, that really puts Aboriginal people in a certain box. So I wanted to unpack it and just purely tell these feature stories from the perspective of these distraught families, these parents, grandparents, and not be paternalistic about it, not go from top, top down, so like the police and the, the government, they came last. And so what you get is a whole other language around media, Indigenous affairs reporting, which is coming straight from, from the people who are affected by it. I think that felt really, I think that really inspired the communities working for BuzzFeed. I'm very lucky in that people are able to immediately respond to the work. So people, also the communities feel like they have ownership of it and they will pull you up and they will give you accountable. And I think, yes, because that's, that, that's gonna keep the work honest and, um, and also help me sleep at night and knowing that these stories are preserved, but I'm also, as tragic as this story is, is that people feel empowered that they're able to have something out there and I see it being shared on Facebook constantly. So I think that's interesting, that language around Indigenous affairs reporting, you know, the way the government speaks about Indigenous people. It's up to us as Aboriginal people to, to take back that narrative and create our own language. And I think social media also offers that alternative for people to find stories told from these kind of perspectives as well, so they're not so, mm. you know. I'm also finding on social media as well that um, there are pages that are dedicated to, to language, you know, purely to language. I mean, just yesterday, purely by accident, I saw a page about Torres Strait Islander language stories and dance. You know, it's, it's that constant discovery. You know, and it helps me keep my culture alive. But I guess I think now's probably a good time to put it to the floor and you are quite welcome to have questions. Um, this question's probably mostly for, for Alan. How much of an advantage do you feel it is or how much easier does it make it you to do your job uh, telling stories about Indigenous affairs, uh, Indigenous affairs being an, an Aboriginal man and the... The flip side of that is how does how much harder does it make you make it to switch off from the the hard stories when you you are telling these really you know heartbreaking stories about what's happening in some communities? Yeah, I get that question a lot actually because uh, I worked for Living Black at SBS for about seven years, and that was as a video journalist, so I was on my own, sort of parachuting into remote communities constantly, just spending time with people getting their stories um, and, and putting it on, on TV. And people always, uh, always make it easier because you're, you know, you're a black fella. And the answer is, uh, in some ways, yes, but in other ways, no. I mean, at the end of the day, people, I am media still. I come in, I'm wanting, I mean, in some ways, it's hard to explain you know, the role of good media to communities because all they've had is bad media and they've had people come in and um, steal their stories or misconstrue them and they feel powerless. So uh, once I'm over that barrier, but uh, 
then it, it's a lot easier. But also being Aboriginal, I'm a lot more conscious of, of how community life, um, how things culturally work. Um, I will often, I mean, I used to, and even now when I'm on the road, sometimes I will just sit back. And you might not get anything for one or two days, but it's just about forming bonds or communicating with people to get that trust up, which is so important, particularly when I see other journalists come in on a very tight deadline, try and grab the story and get out, and they're just, basically, they're, they're not getting anything of worth, and they're treating people pretty badly. So, I mean, but I think the responsibility I feel as an Aboriginal person to those people, um, the obligation to do them justice, is um, makes my work a lot more, um, have a lot more depth. But, and, and having answered your second part of your question, I mean, it's very hard to switch off, very hard. Um, there, are time, there are months or weeks where I'm fine and I'm just in a pattern getting stuff done, and then there'll be moments where it all kind of hits, hits you. And I think the Don Dale is a good excuse. I mean, watching that footage, even though I'd reported extensively on that report the year before, um, but actually have, uh, 12 months later watching it on Four Corners, whatever, just just harrowing, just I felt very out of sorts for probably two or three days. And I mean, there's still triggers around that stuff. I think as an Aboriginal person, it's very hard because for me, I see myself as a teen in those boys or I see my cousins or I see my nephews. So yeah, incredibly difficult. But at the same time, it's important to have Aboriginal reporters to tell those stories honest, honestly, factually, and, and, and do justice to to our communities. Is there more of a balance though? I mean, in terms of can Aboriginal journalists or Indigenous journalists do the hard stories? I mean, you did one, but, <laughs> but can, can they? But, you know, uh, definitely. Smaller, right? yeah. yeah. I think they can. I think, I think even more so, I mean, because people expect from Aboriginal media, I'm, I'm not talking yep. for Silver, but um, to to sometimes go above and beyond what you would call objectivity well, yeah. just because you're Aboriginal. And I mean, sometimes you overcompensate and you think, why am I putting all of these voices from authorities in here that don't, you know, when something is so bad, but it, I think sometimes it's because you are Aboriginal. I mean, I, I haven't had that at BuzzFeed. I have an amazing amount of autonomy there, but I mean, at ABC, I've had that at SBS. I think mm. we're just unconsciously sometimes think, oh yeah, you've got this, horrible situation in the community, you know, it can't all be the fault of the government ever go out and get a million voices. So. Do, do you find sometimes, like, because you're the Indigenous person in the room, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, that you're automatically the person that they go to for a quote? I find that a bit <laughs> On any topic. I remember it happened to me first at uni. Well, you're Indigenous, so you tell me what you think. And I'm like, what? what? <laughs> Why am I being picked out, you know? And that's the danger, I guess, that, you know, being an Indigenous voice within an organisation. But, yeah, I, I, I don't have it so bad at the at ABC with that. Um, you know, I do, I, I do want people to pick my brain because I do, you know, believe that, um, you know, I may not have all the answers, but I can certainly try and put you in the right one. And if you're looking, then we're having a conversation and then we're starting to break down those walls of, you know, um, wider things, you know, um, you know, getting down to racism even, you know, like it, it all, it all, all kinds of adds up and um, keeps the conversation going about, you know, um, 
Indigenous perspectives and <coughs> stories and um, just communication with an Indigenous person. So I don't mind so much being kind of, you know, asked, but, you know, sometimes it's like, well, maybe you could ask someone else or maybe you could think before, but, yeah, I don't have it so bad. <laughs> Sorry, any other questions? Um, I'm interested in... Uh, about 20-odd years ago, um, I learned that remote and Indigenous communities had a faster uptake of the internet than, than the mainstream. Um, and, and, and I'm interested now uh, in how... Uh, mobile and social media and what the uptake of that is and also more importantly how that's contributing to remote and indigenous communities um, actually contributing their stories back into to the work that all of you are doing. I'd just say from a BuzzFeed perspective um, Facebook has been incredible for our community. It, I've just noticed in the past 10 years just this incredible um, sort of shared community happening on Facebook and the amount of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people on there is incredible. And the amount of, page, I mean, as Jade was mentioning earlier, pages popping up about culture, about language, about, you know, uh, around cultural histories is just uh, incredible. And the people leading that charge are young people. And there are a lot of older people in there as well, which, which sort of, uh, you know, is really interesting seeing that melting pot of the Indigenous community all coming together. But I really feel, yeah, it's a, social media has been great. And Aboriginal people, in particular out where I'm from, most people are on Facebook because, you know, uh, a lot of people don't have phone plans. A lot of people don't have access to internet properly. But on, I think on phones like Telstra, out where I'm from, Facebook is free, actually, when you... Um, even, so if you run out of credit, people will... Con so even my sisters and my mum, you know, they run out of credit and they want something, they'll... they'll, they'll private message me on Facebook, yeah. you know? It's like, call me or whatever, and it's yeah. like, oh, wow, this is kind of this incredible do you find, network. Do you find young kids? I mean, I know they're primary school-aged children, but there's also high school students. Is it social media or is that digital platform something that, you know, in terms of Wiradjuri language is consumed, is it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think we, we actually set up a website for... just so we can get some language out there, just because... The you know the, the younger generation today are constantly using Facebook or the social media, so certainly that was targeted by us to get the language out there. And just you know, and just by looking at some of those things that are on the social media, and um, looking at it and seeing that, or and talking about that authenticity, um, I think it it'll it comes back to that area as well. So certainly with our social media and the language, yeah, we have to have to go into it. You have to, yeah, yeah. Um, hello, I'm Nan Saxton from ABC. I'm just asking um, from a non-Aboriginal perspective, someone, uh, myself, who's very passionate about doing Indigenous issues and doing them justice and being opposite to the cliche of, of whitefellas, you know, sweeping in and buggering it up, basically. Um, I, I wonder if you could give some advice, really, on how to... Uh, how to do that respectfully from from my perspective? You know. uh, teapot. I get asked that question all the time. You know, you know, I really want to do something, um, and I I don't know any Aboriginal people. And I say, well, you know, ask someone for a cup of tea. You know, and um, or go to someone else, go to an Aboriginal person's place and have a cup of tea. And it's amazing the number of times that. 
Aboriginal women have come up to me, usually women, and um, I've said, that's the first white person I've had in my house. You know, this is, this is what Australia is like, and that's the way to do it. And people, you know, some friends of mine at a, a show in Preston uh, recently um, were in the audience and they, they come up at the end of the thing and said, look, we really want to do something. And I said, well, you know, they're in Wurundjeri country. I said, well, go down there to the community, you know. And, but that's the hard bit, fronting up a white person, fronting up um, to an Aboriginal organisation and saying, what can I do? That, and a lot of people won't do it because it's very hard. It's embarrassing. You know, you have to break the ice and it's embarrassing. It's a social, socially difficult moment. But that's the only way to do it, uh, to, to, to make some movement toward the Aboriginal community. Aboriginal people have been trying to communicate with um, Australia for 220 years um, and it's become very, very difficult, um, you know, in the last 200 because those first 20 years of overtures from Aboriginal people were rejected. Um, but, you know, the old cup of tea, you know, it's amazing what a difference it makes and how you, you learn, you know, you've got to learn the, the baby's name, the dog's name, mm. the other dog's name, and <laughs> those other dogs and names. That, that's, you know, that's the human side of it. That's how you get to know people. And that's how you learn history too. Because you learn the history of that family very quickly. You see what's on the mantelpiece, you know, um, what is precious to them. I think it's a longer process, sorry to jump in there, but it's a longer process than just going to, um, you know, an ordinary kind of story, you know. If you, if you want to really engage with the Indigenous community and have create meaningful content, then you need to invest the time and it needs to be not superficial, it needs to be meaningful you know sit down have that cup of tea I mean that's what I say sometimes I work with students from the university on the coast and and I say to them you know I, I give them an indigenous story to do and um and they're all like oh my god how am I going to do that I don't know how to do that like I'm like what you just have to you know it's, a, it's, it's just people we're just people like no. you know it's just the same but you know given the history of you know the relationship with media and indigenous people you also have to kind of be aware of the climate like has has the abc burnt this community before mm. that i've been into you know ask those kinds of questions and then you know see how you can make those inroads i'm just going to jump in a little bit too and obviously we know one of the biggest breaking stories was a couple of years in cairns that that was a really massive story and and I'm not just saying it because I work for NITV, but NITV actually took the lead in, in helping journalists that had come in from around the nation to understand what the cultural protocols of that situation was. And I think it's that thing of, you know, you've got colleagues, constantly got colleagues, pick up phone, say, listen, this is what's happening. How do I go about this in a culturally sensitive way, I think, as well? Because we all know, very diverse within Indigenous communities, Indigenous Australia, very diverse you know, what's culturally appropriate here in New South Wales is not culturally appropriate in the Torres Strait or, you know, Kimberley region. You know? So it's about ask, asking your colleagues, mm. not just because, you know, I'm not news because you come to us, because we're <laughs> the person in the room, but it's, it's, we have some knowledge that you guys might, you know, want to embrace, I think. And it, there's um, stereotypes have to be broken down all the time. I remember at the start of the intervention, and that intervention is still going, but at the start of it, um, SBS was showing um, a, a, a clip 
over their news and it was of an Aboriginal man with a box of beer over his shoulder and holding the hand of a little girl walking away from the camera. So he actually walked past um, an art centre, one of the most successful art centres in Australia, but the image was um, kind of misleading. Um, and I, I rang up and I said, you know, why? And that, this just went on and on and on. Three or four times a day you would see this image on SBS because we were all watching it to find out what the hell was going on with this intervention. And it was like it was perpetuating, you know, the little children a sacred myth. Mm. So I, I rang up and I, I objected and I said, look, I know that man's name and that's his daughter. Ring him up, ask permission for that. Image. And of course it, it just dropped off the screen. So everyone has that power. You, you know, it's, um, you can break down um, the myth, you can break down the assumption, and it's a learning experience for us all, and it's going to be hurtful. Um, the whole, whole thing is often hurtful, but it can also be joyous. Hi, uh, another ABC reporter, actually, I'm one of Nance's colleagues. Hi, Nance, Mike Coggan from ABC. I've, I've been up in Darwin for about 19 years, and now I'm based in Adelaide, and it's really interesting to hear the perspective of an all-Indigenous panel. Fantastic, awesome, great to see Indigenous reporters out there telling Indigenous stories. And it's um, from the point of view of a reporter who's been a white fellow telling black fellow stories for a long time. It's fantastic. We need more Indigenous faces. We need more Indigenous voices. But I'm interested to hear your perspective about white fellows continuing to tell black fellow stories and, and the value of that. I think, it, I mean, there's a place. I mean, I'm not, I'm not hating <laughs> all, my, all my white colleagues. No, 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 not at all. But I think there, are, I mean, in, in media, there is the, this, this kind of three types of journalists who do Indigenous affairs. There's ones that really have been assigned and really don't want to do it and just kind of don't put in the effort and do cheap, lazy work. Um, and then there's others who think they know everything and won't seek advice, like Jade was saying, come and ask people about cultural protocol, things like that, um, who, who just kind of, you know, who sort of will tell you that they know more about the community than you do um, because they've been doing it a long time. And then the third one is those who, who work collaboratively or um, with Indigenous people and Indigenous reporters. And I find those people um, do an incredible job. I mean, you've got people like Caro Meldrum Hanna, who did the Don Dale story, who, who acknowledged a lot of the Aboriginal reporters and spoke with a lot of them before she did that report because a lot of local media in Darwin, a lot of Aboriginal media were covering that situation for years. But I think um, there's, there is definitely a place. The more Indigenous content we can get out there, I think the more important... Uh, I think, yeah, we need to keep going and, and get more stuff out there. I've just noticed a shift in Indigenous affairs reporting since, say, The Guardian and BuzzFeed have invested in Indigenous rounds in that it's become an attractive round now. And, you know, years ago, no one wanted to do it or the Australian had it all bundled up and that was their patch. Um, different in the Territory. Yeah, definitely in the Territory. But now it's incredible. The, the, and, and the respectful narrative that's coming out, whereas before I grew up in Burke and seeing Daily Telegraph, you know, front page of Daily Telegraph sort of saying, oh, we're all drunks and rioting out, out west is, you know, really the media image I grew up with. And now that's changed significantly with um, online publications and everyone's lifted their game a lot more. I think it's also that knowledge that, you know, you're a journalist. That's your job. That's what you do. You report on the news. 
you know. But what we're saying as Indigenous people is that there, there are ways to tell stories that have a really clear narrative, but at the same time, you know, yes, you have to report on news, but there's also a way of telling the news without perpetuating the stereotypes, you know. And, and yes, those, you know, headlines of what you want to grab as well, but, you know, it's kind of that even balance. Is there any... Is there, you had one more question. Lionel, you've been involved in lot, with lots of different media telling sort of positive language stories from parks because the language program out there has been quite radical. As a non-journalist working with lots of different journalists, so radio, television and um, text as well, what's that, what's that like? Is that, has that been an empowering process for the community or how, how has it been? Yeah, it, in a way it has been empowering for the whole Indigenous community, Aboriginal community there. You do one sort of thing out there and you're sort of the, the focal point, you're the, you're the person. Um, and, and also, I think, just in a classroom, working with other teachers, that, that um, just being this dark sort of gives me the authenticity to, you know, to do these sort of things. And, and people are going to... One of the teachers said they listen to you because you're there in front of them, you're a, a black male. Aboriginal male sort of thing, and there's them engage more because we're talk, I'm talking about Aboriginal uh, culture and so on. So, yeah, but certainly I, the working with other teachers, going back to that, are not as dark as me. That even I turn around and say, "Oh, are you Aboriginal too?" Sort of, so that sort of thing. It's yeah. I just want to guess, I know that there's a couple more questions, but I guess I want to close with another quote from Bruce's book. I thought it was a really great passage. It says, The songlines of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people connected clans from one side of the country to another. The cultural, economic, genetic and artistic conduits of the songlines brought goods, art, news, ideas, technology and marriage partners to centres of exchange. Basically what I, I interpret that as, you know, we, were, we live in a modern society, you know, we always have been, always will be storytellers. You know, we are bringing our ancient tongues into this modern hemisphere and, you know, and we'll continue to do that. You've been listening to the Walkley Talks podcast miniseries Conversations from Storyology. Thanks so much to Alan Clark, Salua Middleton, Bruce Pascoe, Lionel Lovett and Jade Christian for being on this panel. Now, the Walkley Foundation recently announced the finalists for the annual Walkley Awards, the best journalism in Australia. Be the first to hear who wins on December 2nd by signing up to our newsletter at walkleys.com slash subscribe. You can also check out the finalists' work on our site, walkleys.com. The Walkley Talks podcast is on iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud, and it's produced by me, Kate Golden, for the Walkley Foundation at the 2SER Studios in Sydney, Australia. This episode was edited by Nina Kopel. Catch you next time.